Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles, month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our 10th episode, we'll talk about the Beatles, better known as the White Album, and we'll talk about its triumphs and its lesser-known heroes. And we're talking about both discs, the entire album, so stick around. As with every month, here to sift the runes of the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer of the music blog, The Delete Fin. How's it going, eh, Rob? It's, uh, it's going fine there, Graham. That's more Minnesotan than Canadian, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and returning to talk with us is Alex Kennard, a writer, musician, and co-producer to the Doctor Who podcast Reality Bomb. Still have never heard of him. Hello, stranger. Hello, how are you doing? I thought I would grace you with my presence again. It's so kind of you. Thank yes. you very much. You're very I welcome. You're very welcome. It, it, it was just so very decent of you to do this and had no nothing to do whatsoever with the deal that we made earlier. Yes, um, but... nothing at all. You are going to get those uh, those tight jeans into the mail very quickly, right? Well, yes, yes, I will. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay, good. <laughs> Should I go get a cup of coffee, guys, or what? <laughs> no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. We're, 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 we've done our transaction, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> honor has been settled that's all, right, all i good. will say um so anyways uh to get the recap out of the way 10 months ago the world was a different place jeb bush was going to be the candidate that would get out of the primaries i thought i would listen to all 12 beatles album month by month and in that hazy nostalgic world it seemed like a fun idea to do a podcast about it how little we knew how little we knew with that item off the checklist, let's talk about this month's selection, which is The Beatles, better known as White Album, which was released on the 22nd of November, 1968. We'll do our usual montage of song in two groups this time, so here's everything you need to know about White Album Disc 1 in three minutes, more or less. Take these broken wings and learn to fly. 
all your life. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives. You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives. And now Rocky Raccoon, he fell back in his room, only to find Gideon's Bible. Hello, Rob. Hello, Graham. Now, it's safe to say that at this point, the Beatles were going through a bit of upheaval at this point. Yeah. How is that reflected in White Album? Uh, well, it's uh, it's reflected in, in how uh, arguably kind of disjointed maybe the album is, and that sounds like a negative. Um, and, and maybe to some that, that, that is a negative, but uh, in others, it's just it, it, it just creates the charm of the record. But there is quite a bit of up upheaval here. They had experienced this you know, toward the end of uh, 1967, of course, when they lost Brian Epstein. And uh, by this time, they were, you know, exploring kind of individual pursuits in many ways. Uh, and that that's definitely reflected here as well. I mean, part of it was that many of these songs were worked up while uh, while the Beatles were at the Maharishi summer camp, right? They they wrote <laughs> they wrote all the uh, wrote many of these songs. Uh, while they I were, love that term. Yeah, while they were in uh, Rishikesh uh, studying uh, transcendental meditation at Maharishi summer at camp. at Maharishi summer camp. That's right. And transcendental meditation is a very, very individual pursuit. You know, it's about you know cutting yourself off from from the world to focus on you know the spiritual basically. And uh, that's quite uh, far and away from uh, what it means to hold a band together, for instance. Right. So there's a lot of that kind of working in here as well. And I think it's important too to uh, uh, to put this in a historical context as well. This was 1968, uh, and there was a lot of, of violence and uh, political upheaval happening externally as well. Uh, and a lot of that finds its way onto this record, just in terms of the way it sounds, uh, in terms of its subject matter, and it's a it's definitely a long way away from the tweeness and the sort of innocence of Magical Mystery Tour, for instance. So this is a, that's, what, that, that's part of what makes this album such, uh, so powerful, and that is that it's its own beast, and it's it definitely an expression of where the, where the Beatles were at at the time. Now, Alex, uh, sprawling seems to be the most accurate way of summing up even just the first disc of White Album. For others who might find a, a double album like this somewhat challenging, what would you say is your approach to listening to White Album? Uh, actually, to be honest, Graham, I I listened to it from back to front. This is this is my favorite Beatles album. So for me, I I literally just just take it at the beginning and go right through to the end. I don't uh, I don't really subscribe to the opinion of you should take 
songs out or anything like that i i feel like this is this is just sprawling all over the place and that's part of its brilliance um mm. although actually the the talk about the uh, the transcendental meditation in the maharishi uh, summer camp has actually just kind of sparked off a comparison in my mind that i feel is very uh apt for this for the white album which is the white album really is the david lynch film of uh, beatles albums <laughs> Interesting. It's uh, made by people who are really into transcendental meditation. It's uh, full of doubles all over the place. It's probably a little bit longer than most people have patience for, and it uh, is a complete train of thought right the way through. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who made it probably don't know what it means. <laughs> Your analogy just keeps getting better, I must say. <laughs> I'm pretty good at those, actually. <laughs> Yeah, I went to school for them. <laughs> you went to analogy school. I didn't exactly, know exactly. Wow. Yes, yes. It was very expensive, but uh, and, and probably not worth it. And you now have a job it. at the analogy factory, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah. It's tough work, you know. <laughs> Sixteen hours down the down the mill. Actually, he isn't quite there yet. He had to take a side job out of the metaphor department. But you know, yeah. it's okay. That's right. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Um, but. <laughs> We'll be back to White Album. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what's your method of tackling White Album? Uh, well, I'm very relieved to say it's similar to, to Alex's. Um, there's a lot of argument around whether uh, you know this album should have been a single or whatever it is, and I say poo-poo to that. Um, the, the way that I actually listen to this record, it feels like kind of going into a really big house and wa walking through the rooms. You know, And some rooms are are, you know, elegantly furnished and, uh, you know, very comfortable. And other rooms are stark and, you know, not as comfortable. You know, some are light, some are dark. And I just like, that's, that's how the album feels to me when I'm listening to it. And, uh, and that's, that's a big part of its character. For me, I, I approach it by playing it very loud. It's it's the album yeah. that I, it, it's it, it's an album I'm quite convinced needs to be played loud to be fully appreciated. Uh, yeah. And, and just about everything on it has got something really good going on in it that really merits it being played loud. Even even and even and then you get the really really loud tracks like Helter Skelter that really just you need to feel the whole the whole thing go through your body as you listen to it. So yeah, I'm kind of yeah, I, I kind of feel that's the way of going through it. My, my next question would be, what, what do you think are the key strengths of the White Album? It's one of those records uh, that has sort of tiny little songs in it. Uh, and I'm not just talking about how long they are or whatever it is, but just ones that don't necessarily, they're not necessarily trying to be big pop songs. They're just little vignettes. Uh, and to go back to my analogy earlier, kind of like a, a little closet or a, a hallway to the next song. That's a really important, I think, dynamic to understanding how this this album is laid out. And uh, I think it's one of the first records that I can think of that kind of does things this way. You know, in, in that in that respect, uh, it's tremendously significant in terms of uh, uh, music history. Because I really can't think of any other record uh, before this one, and maybe someone can correct me on this, uh, that, that, that does things this way, that has those kind of little connective tissue type songs that sort of feeds in, into the larger ones. Alex, what would you say are the key strengths of the, of the, of, of the White Album? Interesting about the, the White Album is that it's a double album. And I don't just mean that it's a double disc album, because obviously it's a double disc album, uh, but also that almost every song on the White Album has a double somewhere else on the White Album. So, I mean, it can be as, uh, as obvious as Wild Honey Pie and Honey Pie, 
uh, wild honey pie very much being, you know, like a, an extreme reaction against honey pie, I would argue. Uh, but there's almost like um, supplementary songs as well. So you have Back in the USSR, which kicks off the first disc, is a you know all all uh, close to the floor dancing rock out kind of kind of song, and then Birthday is the song that begins the second disc, and it's essentially the same thing, um, just a little bit different. Uh, and that that kind of echoing happens throughout the album. For me, I mean, the one thing I think the key strength of the album is that. It's never the same thing twice. And I, I, I really think that's quite amazing when you have a double album. I think, Alex, you've made the point that uh, that it's a, it's an album of doubles that, that certain songs echo, but they don't actually directly copy. So, you know, you will start with a song, you will have a song like Honey Pie, which is this 1920s pastiche, and then you will, and then, and you can also have, you know, you can also have a song like, you know, Piggies, which is, you know, or you can have a song like Bungalow Bill, or you can have a song like, like, Why Don't We Do In The Road? It just... Every single song has has a different kind of mood to it. Well, why don't we talk about the first disc a little bit? What are, what would you say are the standout tracks from that? Clearly, there's a sort of a an embarrassment of riches here uh, on the first disc and and all on the whole record in general. But a song that I've always loved is uh, "Dear Prudence." It has a real sort of location type of effect to me. It it, it sounds like the way that. Uh, that light streaming through trees looks. That... It shows off John Lennon's newfound ability at that time uh, to play that kind of claw hammered uh, uh, finger picking, which uh, was sort of talked to him by uh, Donovan because Donovan was uh, was at uh, Maharishi summer camp uh, oh, with the, with the Beatles uh, and he kind of incorporated that kind of folky type of feel to it because initially when he wrote this song I imagine it was done on an acoustic guitar um, and he keeps mm -hmm. that kind of acoustic kind of feeling to it even though it's electrified and it just flows like honey. That song is a real standout for me. Uh, not only on this disc and this album, but uh, I think it's one of the best songs he ever wrote. It's just full of affection and um, it, it's uh, sort of spiritual ecstasy. I, I just It's just full of all that stuff, and I love it. Back in the USSR is is a, a crazy good opener, and I don't think it's the best opener the Beatles have done, but maybe the second best, really close. It, it, right out the get go, you're you you know you're you're in completely unfamiliar territory, and yet familiar territory it, it is. I love the fact that it is both Beach Boys parody and yeah. uh, and just a great rocking song on its own. It it, it has it has it has it has everything. You can pretty much get a mission statement right with that with that opener, mm -hmm. but. <laughs> For me, the standout track from the first disc, though, is, it sounds silly, but it's Obla Di Obla Da. It's nostalgia. I'm sorry. When I was nine or ten years old, I used to visit my cousin in St. Catharines, uh, and my cousin was 17, 18, and she had a boyfriend and who she later married, and they drove me around in, in his in his Honda Civic, and he played the Blue Album on the, on the uh, on, on his on his eight-track player, and, and Obla Di Obla Da was just that song I just loved then. It, it, <laughs> 
I love the bounce of the song. I just love the kind of, it's a song that makes you happy. And it goes back to what Alex said about this album. It's an album where you can actually genuinely hear these guys still being happy with each other. Um, so yeah, I, I really, really adore this song. Um, and I really adore this song because, you know, it's <laughs> it's about a transvestite singer and, 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 who, and who's a singer in the band. You gotta love yeah. that. You gotta love that. It's also a reflection of uh, of what was happening in London at the time, and that was that there was lots of Caribbean uh, immigrants coming to live in in London, and their sort of cultural influence over o over that city, you know, where where uh, McCartney was based, you know. So a lot of this is a reflection of his surroundings, you know, in a positive way. For me, it's it has to be happiness as a warm gun. I I deeply believe that happiness is a warm gun is the best song the beatles ever did hmm. uh just the the the, segment, the segmentation of it the just the 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 harmonies the performances every everything the lyrics are amazing happiness is a warm yes it is Everything really just uh, just is is going, you know, firing on all cylinders for this for that song in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, and I and I think if you if you really want to see how important that song was for these both John Lennon and Paul McCartney, "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" is is I believe mostly a John Lennon song, although I think it was done by written by both. But "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" has the most impact on Paul McCartney as a songwriter in his later career. Mm. Because when you look at some of Paul McCartney's best songs, Band on the Run, Live and Let Die, they have the same structure that Happiness is a Warm Gun has. Yeah. Where they use entirely, almost entirely different genres to express different, different emotions in different parts of the same song. And I really, I feel like that is, the Beatles never did better than that, I think. For me, anyway, it's a song that's almost written symphonically in a way. It has, mm -hmm. it, it has, it, it has different movement. It's one of those songs that just when it comes to the end of one thing, it just picks up another thing, and you know, mm -hmm. so you go, you know, and the chorus doesn't even feel like a chorus. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like a logical progression. It just feels like the, it feels like the arpeggio. <laughs> you know, it mm. is, you know, suddenly it's <laughs> happy, and you're like, whoa, that, that, where did that fit in with what you just heard before? Mother Superior jumps again. Mother Superior jumped the gun. Happiness is a warm gun. Here's a question that's, I think, best suited for an album like White Album, which throws everything against the wall to see what sticks. What's an album, what's a track on the album that may not be popular, but nonetheless, you're rooting for it? And since I put this one forward, I will volunteer my answer first. And my answer first is Rocky Raccoon, which, oh my God, I am I am still rooting for Rocky Raccoon even today. I love this song beyond all reason. This song invents itself as it is being written. I swear to God, it is being rhymed out as it is being sung. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> his rival, it seems, had broken his dreams. By stealing the girl of his fancy Her name was McGill And she called herself Lil But everyone knew her as Nancy 
and yet, you know, at the same time, it's parody of, of I, I don't know, Appalachian folk that's got Paul McCartney doing a cod American accent. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota, there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. This song really is kind of, you know, the the happiness is a warm gun of deep cuts of the Beatles, I think. Mm. <laughs> it just it just <laughs> it's just where on earth is this coming from? But I love it. And it's so crazy good because it because it just when you think, oh, my God, they're not, he's not going to be possibly be able to rhyme something. He does it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I had no idea he, he did the near rhyme Gideon's Bible and revival. I think that is genius. Yeah. So there you go. That yeah. that is that is what I am rooting. So, Rob, uh, what, what is your choice? I'm going to cheat, Graham, and I'm going to pick two sort of. Uh, I'm okay. going to start off. I'm going to start off with uh, with Don't Pass Me By, which is mm -hmm. the Ringo uh, the Ringo contribution to uh, to the first disc, and uh, it's sort of a a jaunty little country tune that's slightly ramshackle, which which I quite like. But I think the thing that really redeems that song is. Sorry that I doubted you. I was so unfair. You were in a car crash and you lost your hair. That's <laughs> that that. That changes the entire, it's right at the end of the song and it changes the entire shape of it in terms of how it's perceived. And I think that's, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, and it's, it's one thing that uh, I didn't pick up until, you know, many listens later. And you mentioned, Graham, uh, about the White Album being kind of something that changes every time you hear it. And I think that's a really good example. But my real, real answer to that, uh, to that uh, question is uh, George Harrison's uh, Piggies. <laughs> which I love. I've always loved that one. Uh, and I think I love it because it has that kind of Regency period kind of powdered wig kind of feel to it with all the harpsichord and... Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives You can see them out for dinner with their piggy wives Clutching forks and knives to eat them it's all kind of piled up in, in its sort of filigrees and all that kind of stuff. But what it's really about is bitching about bourgeois attitudes of the middle class, which I, re I really love that. I really love the, the contrast between those two things. And it's, it's Harrison, uh, it's George Harrison uh, doing his, uh, his thing where, you know, I'm in here and you're out there type of dynamic. And there's, and there's a lot of that in, in his uh, writing. Uh, and that would spill over into his uh, solo career as well. But, I just love the the, uh, uh, the contrast between those those two things. It's just magical. First thing, most thing I love most about Piggies is, of course, harpsichord. Because I think the great thing that the 1960s gave us was bringing the harpsichord into pop music. And, I'm, and yeah. I saw Doctor Strange this week, and, and I have to say, I was just so overjoyed to hear that the theme used the harpsichord. <laughs> like oh my god why don't we have more harpsichord in pop music today this is, yeah. this, is this is this is my fervent belief but that i digress his, his music sensibilities are just so vast um uh -huh. i can hear shannon dohar like high-fiving us while we're doing this but yeah. you know like like you know <laughs> this guy is doing everything from kick-ass guitar to sitar to the freaking harpsichord like like mm -hmm. like how does this how does this guy have a resume that you know encompasses all this you know at the age of 25 is it yeah. is mind 
mind-blowing to me. But anyways, yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I just I just adore that song, so I, I echo it. Alex, what are you rooting for? Uh, well, I, I'm going to digress for a quick second and tell a quick story about Rocky Raccoon. Back in the annals of time, when I was in high school, I had a huge crush on a, uh, a girl in my, in, in my ear. And uh, and we had discussed music, and she had indicated her passion for both Rocky Raccoon and the Animals House of the Rising Sun. So I decided I'm going to learn how to play one of these songs, and I'm going to perform it and be all amazing. I could not bring myself to learn House of the Rising Sun by the Animals. So instead, I learned all of Rocky Raccoon. <laughs> And that was my romantic song. Um, it didn't work very well, but I stand by my choice. <laughs> so, you know. Nice. I, affirm, I affirm your life choices, Alex. It's All for love. <laughs> All for love, Alex. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so my, my choice would be, well, my choice actually would have been Piggies, because uh, I think Piggies is fantastic. But uh, the reason for that choice and the reason for leading into my second choice would probably make Shannon Doha give me a kick in the shin, which is that I think Piggies is really the only great George Harrison song on the White Album. Yeah, I'm, um, I might kick you in the shins too there, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I like I like Everyone Savoy Truffle. Everyone line up to I decide actually... to kick Alex Kenner yeah, in the shins. Exactly, please. exactly. There's going to be lots of kicks for this because I'm going to piss you off even more in a second. All right. Um, <laughs> All right. I hate Eric Clapton on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Yeah, <laughs> I'm at the front of the line uh, now uh, for the... For yeah, the <laughs> I, just, I, I just don't like Eric Clapton as a guitar player, and I never really have. Um, and I feel like he does something that over that that is unforgivable, which is... And this is my choice. My choice is Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney as the drum and bass duo on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. <laughs> Because they do an amazing job. Like that is just, just amazing. It's just amazing to listen to the way that they're playing with each other on that song. And then you have over the top of it, Eric Clapton playing guitar, which for me is definitely taking away from the incredible job that's <laughs> happening. And it, I mean, just listen to Ringo's hi-hat work at the beginning of that song and you will agree with me. It's just, it's stunning. You can you can now kick me. You can now it's kick all right. me. Okay. It's all right. Um. Anyways, people wanting to know Alex's location for shin kicking, please contact me later. Um. At, <laughs> at Beatles, please contact me at Beatles at gemgeekheartrarebuck dot com. Uh. Why don't we at this point move on to the next part of the album? So here's everything you need to know about White Album Disc Two in three minutes, more or less.
So, Rob, a bit of a loaded question for you. Is there, is there any significant difference for you between disc one and disc two of White Album? I think I think disc two is is a little uh, is a little angrier, maybe. Um, but mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to, to split up the White Album. Like I say, like it's one big, it's like walking through one big house for me. But if if pushed, I might say that that uh, the second disc is just slightly angrier and nastier. Um, and uh, more challenging, maybe, in terms of the pop music sensibility side of things. But, yeah, it's, it's really hard for me to... to it would be really hard for me to prove that, you know what I mean? But that's just a... <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's just a, a, a gut reaction. I think, for me, the only difference I can see is that I think the, the Paul songs are really strong on, on disc one. I think they're even stronger on disc two. I think you have Helter Skelter, which I'm, we're going to talk about a little bit. We, yeah. I've got feelings about this, and we're going to talk about later. Honey Pie, which is like this <laughs> wild, wild song, which is this wild pastiche. Mother Nature's Son, which I'm, I wrote in my notes, this pretty much invents Nick Drake. Um, you know, I just, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I just think there's some really. I, I think I think he's. I think you've got him kind of messing around on on disc one, and and all of a sudden he just sort of says, "Okay, fine, let's just go do this." And uh, yeah. so yeah, so I, I think there's. I think there's. I think there's that. Um, Alex, I, I take it you're probably one of the. It's a one whole one album kind of approach. So do you don't really see much difference between one and two. No, I don't, I don't think so. I th- I feel like um, disc two is maybe a little bit more experimental, if if anything. Um, there's i mean and not just because revolution number no. 9 is on there obviously revolution number no. 9 is like a huge departure uh for from everything um but helter skelter is as well uh helter skelter is a really new moment for the beatles uh, revolution number no. 1 is like ab- possibly the most obviously and blatantly political john lennon gets with the beatles uh you know you, uh, um I get Savoy Truffle, I think, is is for George Harrison really a moment. I I personally think it's a bit, as I said, a bit inconsequential. It is it is still, I can recognize it as a moment for George Harrison. It's a new thing. But then to kind of 
take it even further, Good Night is... When did John Lennon ever show that much emotion in the rest of his life? As he showed in writing Good Night. Uh, yeah, I... I I, I think it's it goes with the angry thing. I think uh, I think side two almost feels a little more raw. Any discussion of disc two probably needs to talk in specific about two specific songs, one by Paul and one by John. So why don't we start first with the Paul song? Let's talk about Helter Skelter because, like I said, I've got feelings about this song. Um, I, I it's <laughs> it's it's one of the I think there's a, I think in this year I've done the Beatles. I've sort of had like four massive aha moments of oh my god i never knew how good this song was and i think it's yeah. no no reply which is the best beatles opening song ever um it's uh it, it's uh it's help and uh and it's and this song and it's a helter skelter i just i just had no i i i sort of just took it as part of the furniture and this time i just re the baseline on that song oh my god it is oh, so yes. so good but do you don't you want me to love you It just really, really grabs you. It's a song that grabs you by the throat and by the balls and just says, you're coming with me. And, and oh, yeah. So, yes. So, yes. Um, I don't really have much articulate things to say about it. I just wanted to say, <laughs> oh, my God, this is great. Because I'm talking to two music experts, so I figure I figure you guys will fill in the rest. So. Fair enough. <laughs> Rob, why don't you start <laughs> filling in for me? <laughs> well, I heard I, – I don't know how, uh, how accurate this story is. Uh, it might be one that, to sort of uh, chalk up to uh, Beatles Apocrypha, but – Helter Skelter. Uh, there's a story that Helter Skelter is a uh, a reaction to a conversation that Paul McCartney had with Pete Townsend. Uh, Pete Townsend said um, that he was going to cut the angriest, loudest, you know, sort of rip it up type of rock song that that the Who had ever recorded, you know, and it's going to you know wake up everybody and whatever it was. And he was referring to I can see for miles and miles. And uh, and McCartney said, "Oh yeah," and he uh, he went in and recorded. Uh, <laughs> he put together Helter Skelter, and uh, a lot of people don't. You know, for for many years, a lot of people didn't realize that Helter Skelter was even a Paul McCartney song. Um, That's true. And uh, mm -hmm. it was recorded by. It was uh, covered by uh, Susie and the Banshees at the end of the 1970s. And by that time, McCartney had recorded Mull of Kintyre. You know, like no nobody could uh, could put those two things together. Uh, and as you say, yeah. like it's it's it does grab you by the throat and by the balls, and it does say "Come with me." And in terms of the 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 bass uh, line, the the bass strings sound like they're about a mile wide on this song, don't they? Like just mm -hmm. you know, they're it's yes. just such it's got such bottom to it, you know. And that that's not even uh, that's not even counting you know all the distortion and all the uh, the noise that fades in and fades out, and you know, basically, it says nothing you knew about uh, rock music applies here. It's just, this is what it is. Boom, and, uh, and that's that's one of its that's one of its strengths. 
of course, uh, the other song is, of course, uh, Revolution 9. So, Alex, speak. <laughs> <laughs> You've been waiting, uh, like, the whole episode to go do this. So oh, yeah. To, oh, yeah. Just, just go. Um, you, you remember how last time we, we talked about the fact that I, w- I was unhappy with people saying that the, uh, that the, that the minimalist complete destruction of uh, orchestral classical music was unlistenable and nobody liked it because I do. Uh, one of the reasons why I do is because of Revolution Number no. 9. Uh, Revolution Number no. 9 like hooked into my brain when I was a teenager and just like took me... I don't. I don't even know where it took me. Um, actually, it's surprising because the two that you, the two that we're talking about, Helter Skelter and Revolution Number no. Nine, both probably did had a have a lot to do with the kind of music that I make and listen to uh, as an adult. Um, because just a side note for Helter Skelter, if you're somebody that likes to use feedback and distortion as uh, as an instrument and uh, you know, kind of go towards noise rock. You you probably had some kind of formative experience with Helter Skelter because that is how it's done. Yeah. Um, the the other side of it though, Revolution Number no. Nine is just such a like. How could you ever know Revolution Number no. Nine? I feel like you could listen to Revolution Number no. Nine every day of your entire life and still. Listen to it again and hear a new thing because nine, number nine. It it's completely it just does strange things to your brain. Mm. Um Maybe it's not what, But it's also pulling from some really interesting uh, poetic and musical traditions at the same time. The approach to how this is made is is pulling from William Burroughs, William S. Burroughs' um, like automatic writing uh, approach. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. It's sort of that. Revolution number nine is, I believe, nine different uh, tape reels playing that are that are being brought in and out of focus at different at almost random times to create what revolution number no. nine is uh, the other thing that I think is is incredible about Revolution Number no. Nine is John Lennon said of it that uh, when he created it, he was trying to cre- when he created Revolution Number no. Nine, he was trying to create a a revolution in music, and that when he looked back on it, he realized that all he was doing was creating a reaction. And I think that's an amazing, amazing thought as well uh, in terms of just creative process and how you look at the work that you've done. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> this, yeah, I've, I could say a lot more, but the, Revolution Number no. 9 is fantastic. It's an, an amazing moment, I think, in music. Uh, and also ha- 
uh, Yoko Ono was uh, was was apparently telling John Lennon that it might not be a good idea, which I think uh, is completely against the stereotype that many people have of Yoko Ono. I have I have had a, my different points in my life very different reactions to uh, Revolution Nine. The first time I heard it as a seventeen eighteen year old, I hated it, and I did not even record it on my uh, on uh, when I recorded <laughs> onto a Maxell cassette. I couldn't. I I think I actually went from Cry Baby Cry to Good Night. So uh, you know, following in the tradition that I would continue later in, in, in a year later, where I would record Double Fantasy and only record the John Lennon songs, and then I would call, I called it Single Fantasy, <laughs> but. I digress. Oh, burn, burn. <laughs> but, uh, but the funny thing is, is that, you know, at different points in my life, I've listened to it and I really, I, I don't think I'll ever be the full on Revolution 9 evangelist that Alex is, but I will be, I, I, I am much more warmer to it than now than, than I probably have been at other junctures of my life. I, I It's a song that, it's a song that I think pay that rewards you for paying attention to it that you do find things in it it is it, it is to fit in with rob's you know you move from room to room metaphor this is this is the full-on art installation you know yeah. this is you go into the room <laughs> and you discover a full-on art installation with videos and, and 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 you know and and random phrases being you know put projected on the on a slide screen and stuff like that and you just go oh and you know water 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 pouring into a into a, in, into a into a cup and overflowing onto into a trough and you just go well i guess it must be art um you and know, then so. you discover it's the bathroom and your mind explodes <laughs> Yes, exactly. And I but I also think, you know, it is as as Alex says, I think it's very surprising depending on what you listen to it. Uh Rob, did you have any thoughts on Revolution? Uh yeah, um I, I like you Graham, I didn't understand its placement on uh, on the White Album when I was younger. I thought it was kind of a you know, self-indulgent kind of move, you know, at the time. Um now I have a bit of a different perspective where I don't really have a really good handle on uh, avant-garde uh, art or music. Um, this, what I do have a handle on is uh, the way that albums are conceived by artists, and that is that albums are slices of moments w where the artist is at at the time. And as such, uh, I think uh, Revolution 9 is an extremely important uh, inclusion on on this album because John this is where John Lennon was at and arguably this is where uh, the Beatles were at in terms of tape loops and they they've been ex experimenting with tape loops for you know for years by this point you know uh, and so it fits very well on the White Album because it it reflects where the artists were at at the time. What would what would you say is one song on the album that you cannot do without? I I, I like Cry Baby Cry because it's sort of a come down from 1967 in a way it's sort of like the the day after when you have a hangover um and i, I really i really like that there's a lot of <laughs> lewis carroll type stuff in there like there was in 1967 but in this case it's ah it's sort of with a sigh with with a sort of uh yeah. you know it's kind of oh yeah you know i'm 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 not feeling the i'm not feeling the love like i did yesterday But uh, but these 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 are the things that I dealt with, and these are the things that were interesting to me at one time, and now, you know, it's things have shifted, and it shows a little bit of the, you know, the sort of the hippie spirit getting a little bit old, 
you know, and I like that. Again, it's it's that we we're catching uh, Lenin where his head is at, and that is going to be like a guiding force uh, for his writing in general for the rest of his, of his life. For me, it's 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 Good Night. Um, and I talked about my love of Good Night in. Uh, in our George Martin episode, but uh, but for, in terms of a production standpoint, but for me, I just I think Alex put it well when he said that you know I think there's this probably has more heart in it than maybe many things John Lennon was writing at the time or indeed ever. I but I also think I just I, I find this song I think I wrote in my notes I called it weaponized nostalgia. It is just it, it is it, it it has maximum impact. It is a song that just grabs my heart and 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 it makes me cry a lot when I listen. It's a song that sort of feels like something you say at the end of the day and at the end of a life, mm-hmm. and and it sort of has that kind of. Um, it's a song I also it's a it's a song I also occasionally sing to my wife before bed. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it just has that. It has a wonderful quality to it, and 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 Ringo is beautiful. Ringo's singing of it is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, um, we don't often compliment Ringo singing a lot, no. and 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 I and, and I, but I think he actually does it. Absolutely perfectly. I could not picture another member of the band doing that. And, and yeah, yeah, for me, it's definitely good night. Alex, mm-hmm. what would you say? Uh, unequivocally, everybody's got something to hide except me and my monkey. <laughs> like, nice. <laughs> I'm glad you chose I just, that one. I just, <laughs> I just love that. I, I, I can't even talk about. I just love it. Like. <laughs> From the from the depths of my being, yeah, that that song I love. Fair enough. This is the fullest expression of the band as a consortium of artists, kind of performing together when they need to. Uh, at this point, Rob, how would you say this is working? Uh, yeah, they're kind of acting. The, the Beatles, in in this respect, is like a banner under which, like an artistic banner under which they're they're operating uh, as uh, as individuals. So they've kind of they kind of changed the game as far as what the Beatles actually means to them, um, which I think was an, an important move for them to to make, because you know they were locked into they were I think they were really trying to get away from the hard days night thing you know they were trying to get away from people's view that you know they were basically a four headed beast uh, you know and uh, the idea that they all they were different personalities you know. Similar in many ways, but different personalities uh, with different things to say as artists, you know. And I think the fact that they use the Beatles as a banner rather than as, you know, um, something into which they were kind of plugging in their their, their sense of identity was, was very important to them. Um, but as a result, as, as was said, you know, you can kind of hear the breakup in there too. 
you know, because the Beatles becomes not them. It becomes an entity of itself that they're trying to get away from in some ways. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me how different their interests are and how they sort of, how they sort of, managed to complement each other you have George, you have john being very self-aware i mean we didn't we haven't even talked about glass onion being like the, oh, the most self-referential right, Beatles song ever. right uh, yeah. also <laughs> has know. an amazing production it's very meta it's it's very incredible you know but at the other end of the spectrum you have a song like julia which is which is also a, mm-hmm. a very self-aware song yes. but it's but it's but it's it's using that self-awareness in a very different way to sort of yeah. you know talk about his feelings about his mom, talk about a lot of other yeah. things. And, and and so, so you know, you see John doing that. Uh, Paul, I think, he just wants to fool around. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's doing all sorts of different different styles. And, yeah, let's try and out Pete Townsend, out Pete Townsend. Let's try and do this kind of out Beach Boys the Beach Boys. I feel I feel like there's a, he, he's more trying to, he's more in it for the playing and the kind of figuring it out. And, and George is... George, George is surprisingly diverse on this album. This is, I mean, I mean, you know, for all of the shin kicking that Alex will take for, you know, uh, <laughs> while my guitar gently weeps. I mean, the fact is, is that you know that song is 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 really kind of his now his signature piece, mm-hmm. and you know, but at the same time, he's doing songs like Piggies, he's doing songs like Savoy Truffle, and it's and 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 they're all so diverse, and it's it's not he's not pigeonholed himself into being the guy. This is the sitar because that's that's pretty much who he was on Revolver and and uh, and and Sergeant Pepper. So it's a very I, I love that kind of aspect. And even Ringo, I think I think steps up here. So you know they all have very different interests, but they complement each other nicely. I feel like My Guitar Gently Whips is also a, a a distinct indication that the Beatles are coming to be over because it's not even really a Beatles song. And I think it's the first time there's a Beatles song on the Beatles. Or, or on a Beatles album that doesn't really sound like it's a Beatles song. Mm. It's a George Harrison song. Uh, mm. In fact, so much so that apparently Eric Clapton did his piece and then said to George Harrison, this is great, but it doesn't sound like a Beatles song. So George Harrison threw it through the uh, <laughs> through the audio effect that they used to make Beatles sounds. He goes, there it goes. It's a Beatles song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This actually pivots nicely into my final question, which is that the dark side of that is that John Lennon once said you can hear the breakup of the Beatles on White Album. Um, there are a number of songs on this album that feel, um, I suppose the only way I can really say it is feel like demos. And I mean that as in they feel like there's one person doing everything yeah. to click tracks and just kind of first, second, third takes. And it's because there are songs like uh, Why Don't We Do It In The Road Paul McCartney recorded that on his own. Nobody else. Uh, I think maybe Ringo did the drums, but he just kind of walked off and did it on his own, which apparently very much upset John Lennon, who liked the song and was quoted as saying that he was always a little bit, he always became upset when Paul McCartney recorded songs without them. I Will is almost certainly, almost certainly has nobody else on it but Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can hear that very regular rhythm. There's not uh, there's not a swing, the kind of swing that John Lennon's rhythm, uh, approach to rhythm guitar brings. It's just a guy sitting there putting, knocking the thing out, essentially. So, uh, so I feel like really here you can hear both the strength of the Beatles as a band and the thing that was tearing them, um, one, at least one of the things that was tearing them apart as well. Um, Rob, do you think that aspect is evident? I do. I do think that. Uh, again, I think it comes back to uh, what we were talking about in terms of their working uh, relationships and putting this record together. They were doing a lot of things on their own. They were sort of sequestering themselves mm-hmm. away in different 
studios at Abbey Road and you know that alone you know the way that they changed their working relationship together uh, and the way that that is kind of expressed and how sort of uh, uh, I'm going to say the word patchwork uh, even though that sounds like a negative it's I don't quite mean it like that but you know just sort of it doesn't flow like uh, Sergeant Pepper for instance which is you know looked upon as being this cohesive statement you know this is a series mm -hmm. of statements from very different people and uh, as, a, as a result, and, you know, you can definitely see that something has changed. The pretentious word that Alex might use is bricolage, actually, I think. Ah. Um, so. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I will see you at the bike shits. <laughs> I do have to do still do my shift at the simile factory, so I'm afraid. <laughs> I think Alex and, 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 and you are both right. And I think you can sort of see that kind of, you know, the, the, the it's an album where you see the joins yeah. more. And, mm -hmm. and that's not, that's not a bad thing in it's many It's not ways, in I terms think, of the I record, think. no. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's one of the charms of it as an album. Exactly. I think I think the joins are the part of the charm of the album, but yeah, you do wonder where they're going to go next with that. And although this this is this is the sound of the Beatles breaking up for sure. This is also the place where I think for the first time we hear John Lennon and Paul McCartney writing songs that are trying to understand how the other one writes. Yeah. Yeah. which which is which ceases to happen immediately like that never happens again it never happened in the past but uh why don't we do it in the road and good night i really feel like those two more than anything else are paul mccartney for why don't we do it in the road going like why does john write what he does like what's the what's the point in what he's doing mm -hmm. and good night really feels like john lennon going so paul taps into this emotion thing let's let's see what it does you know mm -hmm. let's be honest in trying to do it yeah instead of mocking yeah We'll see, guess we'll see how this all plays out. Uh, that, I think that's pretty much a good place to stop. That's all the time we have. We'll be back sooner than you might think with a discussion of the Beatles' 11th album from 1969, Abbey Road. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Alex Kennard. Thanks to you both. You're very welcome. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. Everywhere there's lots of piggies living piggy lives.